0: Welcome to the Mother of All Movement podcast with me, Catherine Meadows. I'm a women's health trainer specializing in postnatal recovery and a mum to two kids myself. My aim is to inspire and educate through chats with women who are either working through their own movement journey or work to help women get stronger and recover both physically and mentally after having kids. I want to talk about what they do, how they integrate it into their family lives, and essentially, Why? Because I believe when we share our stories and our values, we lift each other up, enabling every mother to fulfil her body's potential, gain confidence in her power, and give her family the best version of her to share their lives with. So join me each week to hear these wonderful women talk about their journey. all right welcome everybody thank you so much for joining us today i am speaking today to mina leslie vyastic so mina is a professional climber and she is also a sports nutritionist and uh mina and i met first uh, of all when i was climbing at a wall in london that mina was part of the youth squad at and you know doing some incredible climbing while I was bundling around and you know really not doing any incredible climbing but ever since I mean as like skyrocketed with her incredible results with the things that she has pushed herself and challenged herself to do from on some of the hardest rock in uh rock climbs in the UK so we're going to hear all about that and also all about her experiences of being an elite athlete and um then becoming a mother very recently and and her work as a nutritionist as well so I'm really excited about this because there's so many different aspects that we could talk about here so Mina thank you so much for joining us.
1: Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, no problem. So, like I mentioned, you you and I, we used to climb at the Westway. I mean, I say you and I like as if I had anything to do with it, and I didn't. Uh, but you used to be a youth climber at the Westway. But, so tell me a little bit more about what it was like when you started climbing, So you started climbing from a really young age. Right? Yeah, sure. I, th- I think I started about eight.
1: So actually, before that phase at the Westway, I started climbing... Re- <laughs> slightly long story into it but we my family moved to South India for a year when I was seven and so I spent from when I was seven to when I was eight living in Bangalore and going to school there and there was this jungle gym at the school that I absolutely loved and I guess because of warmer climate and everything we were outside loads and I was always climbing on the jungle gym and then when we moved back to England I kind of had this like itchy wanting to climb around on things and used to like climb around the house trying to touch all the walls without you know touching the yeah. floor you know like the floor is a swamp kind of game yeah. and my parents weren't climbers and um, but they looked into it to kind of find out if it was a thing that i could go and do <laughs> obviously like to climb up things and and it turns out it's a thing and <laughs> so they took me along to this like really old school outdoor wall near where we lived and i went had some lessons there basically and and then eventually you know found other walls and yeah And people took me under their wing at various different points in my childhood and teenage years. And I got into both climbing indoors and climbing outdoors through that. And the Westway was a huge part of that. Um, Am I right
0: that you were part of the youth squad there?
1: Yeah, I was. So actually, the initial way I got involved was through a guy called John Gibbons, who used to be ins- yeah. an instructor at the Climb in Amersham, which was a oh, wall yeah. that was more okay. local to where I actually lived. And he got the job as the manager of the Westway. Mm-hmm. And I knew him quite well. He was one of those people that really took me under his wing when I was younger. And he actually offered me a bit of a kind of Saturday job working at the Westway. So I used to come and basically okay. help out with the really little kids' groups. Yeah. And then they started a squad, and I got involved with the squad. Um, okay. But kind of as a member of the squad and um, but I was also kind of working there on Saturdays
0: amazing um, perfect situation then for you yeah it was so great then, um So then, you know, for anybody that's kind of listening uh, out of interest, but you don't know the difference with climbing. So the climbing walls that are inside that kind of mimic what it's like to climb on a rope outside or climb without a rope with a kind of like a crash mat underneath you with holds on the wall. Or there's climbing outside, which is climbing on real rock. And then that depends on what type of climbing you're doing. Uh, It could be bouldering, which is without any harness, without ropes. And you have some protection underneath you and you're climbing up boulders, big ones, or across them or along them or whatever. Or you could be doing something called sport climbing, which is where you have a rope that you're clipping into carabiners that are on the wall or you fix them onto the wall as you go up. Or you do something called track climbing, which is where you place your own protection into the features and the little cracks and notches in the wall. So that's like has an extra level of of complication or potentially danger as well so uh, all of those things are graded differently so they go from sort of easier ones that your kids could climb around on to you know the super hard stuff that very few people end up being able to do so so Mina you then eventually started climbing competitions is that right so that's kind of like an extra whole other thing that's indoor climbing but now you're actually doing competitions
1: yeah, and I got into those quite young, really. I guess sometimes with youth climbers, you're spending, especially if your parents aren't climbers, which mine weren't, your entry to the sport is through indoor walls, right? Mm. So then indoor walls often have like leagues or clubs or, you know, organized groups. And often that tends to channel into kind of competitive environment or not competitive environments, competitive events yeah. and kind of, and things like that. So yeah i got kind of involved in local bouldering leagues and you know if you do kind of all right in one of those you think oh maybe i'll enter this other thing or someone suggests etc etc and so I, there was this kind of youth series called the it was called the bricks then it was it's called something else now oh yeah um, uh can't remember what it's called now but um and there was, you know, local um, regional rounds. And then if you did well at regional rounds, the top three or something would go to a national round. So I got involved in all those kinds of kids events. I'm sure there's a similar setup in other sports. Uh, I, I yes. wouldn't know because I've been so channeled into cl- just climbing. Just climbing. Yeah, yeah, I was one of those people that was, Basically rubbish at everything else and then I found climbing was like
0: Woo-hoo. <laughs> I could um, do something and you were pretty, pretty good <laughs> let's face it so that was good and and so then eventually you get around to the um British bouldering squad is that right oh, yeah B- British indoor squad but sport climbing as well or
1: no so I just was on the bouldering team okay, um yeah. so as a youth climber I did competitions that were mixed you know sport climbing and bouldering but then I actually had some time out in my teens from competing and actually some time out from climbing as well altogether. but then I got back into it when I moved to Sheffield so I moved to Sheffield to go to university because I grew up around London and I had the first year in Sheffield I actually wasn't climbing and then I randomly just was like I want to get back into climbing went down to one of the local walls and met some people and then the summer after that I just Randomly did a competition, did the British Bouldering Championships, and and I did all right, and I got invited onto the team, and I was like, oh right, this is happening again. But then it was great. I had a, a really fun few years of competing and doing kind of events on the World Cup circuit and stuff like that, which was great. It was really fun.
0: Okay, and and had you stopped because you just kind of had enough? It had been a lot that you'd done quite uh, soon when you were little
1: with the competitions. The yeah. competitions I kind oh, of stopped. Yeah, they were kind of two separate um, stops. I remember the competitions. I just went to a couple that I really didn't enjoy. I remember really wanting to be on the junior British team when I was a kind of a young teenager that was like, you know, the Holy Grail. And um, then I remember going to a national competition in Leeds and Kids on the on the British team just didn't look very happy. I think there were some tears, you know, as I'm sure there are across all sports, sure,
0: yeah,
1: yeah, um, with kids in a competitive environment. But maybe I just saw some stuff at the wrong moment and was just like, oh, that doesn't look very fun. And maybe I I probably didn't do very well, or maybe didn't have a very good time, or something. And I remember saying to my dad in the car on the way back, like, I don't know if I want to do competitions anymore. Okay. And so I stopped competing, but carried on climbing. like because I'd been introduced to outdoor climbing by then as well so I was doing kind of a bit of, of both but then when I was a little bit older my mum got quite unwell and then she passed away and it was around mm. that time I just stopped climbing altogether oh. I just kind of focused on finishing school and and the rest of it and- yeah yeah Oh, yeah. that's
0: he- heavy stuff to deal with all at the end of school and things as well so
1: yeah yeah she passed away when i was 17 so it was uh, kind of rough timing when you're in, in the throes of puberty as well yeah. so yeah i just took a pause from it and uh, but when i went to university and kind of turned a bit of a new leaf i, I started again yeah
0: Yeah so interesting that you chose, was that partly intentional? I mean Sheffield you know is kind of like the centre of climbing really. Yeah. Um, uh, Was that partly intentional or was it one of those sort of unconscious like oh how did that happen I just managed to land myself in climbing Mecca?
1: Well I think I'd always had Sheffield as like I want to go to university in Sheffield like it had always been there in my mind and also I like because of that, I'd done research into the courses that maybe I'd want to do there. And around the time I was applying for university or starting to think about that, I was still maybe climbing like a little bit because it was before my mum passed away. so I think it was just like the seeds had already been sown and I just kind of like followed through on it. And they had a really, I studied physiotherapy and they had a really good physiotherapy course there. So it kind of all lined up anyway for the other reasons that I wanted to go to university yes. other okay. than climbing and moving to Sheffield. Yeah. I also think I probably knew I would always get back into climbing. Like it was such a huge part of my okay. life and I loved it. And I think I probably knew that I was just a bit sad and that, hmm. you know, that would lift and and normal normal things would come back in.
0: So then you started back, you got back into the sport and were doing really well. You got back onto the team again? Uh, Well, I wasn't on the team as a junior. Yeah,
1: I got into into the the team finally as an adult. Yeah.
0: Okay. (laughs) And then you did some World Cups, she throws around as if that's sort of nothing. But but, so the World Cups is, you know, a series. Am I right? It's a series of events all the way through a year and it runs every year, does it?
1: Yeah. So you have World Cups and then so from that you end up with an overall world ranking, but you can also kind of get, a, say, a, a bronze, a silver or gold at a World Cup. You, know, you can get kind of be a World Cup winner is, for an, a single event, but then you can also be like an overall, okay. overall certain ranked in the year. But then there's also World Championships, which are one off events. You know, then you are World Champion
0: Right,
1: um, and there's European Championships and, and things like that.
0: Okay, All right. And then and then now, obviously, we know that we've had the Olympics and climbing is in the Olympics. So that's sort of taken it all up to the next level. Yeah. You then at at what point did you stop competing in the squad in the
1: 2014? I stopped. So quite a long time ago now. Yeah.
0: All right. And why did you stop? kind of the same thing happened
1: as when I was a teenager no not quite the same thing but I just stopped enjoying them no no it wasn't so much that I saw miserable people I became that miserable person okay right okay (laughs) yeah I just had I think 2013 I had a really good season I was climbing really well and everything went well and I was kind of like I wasn't doing amazing amazing like I wasn't winning things or even making podium but I was like trying to get into finals I was like knocking on the door of being in the top six and I was ranked I was like ranked number nine in the world after that 2013 year. So I was, I had a really good year and I felt like, right, I want to like build on that, but I was also climbing outside a lot as well. And then 2014 season, I just kind of like came back to it and was struggling to keep up in the same way that I had the year before. So I was not doing as well as I'd like to have been doing. I was also just away a lot, like the comps that year were really back to back. So I was traveling with Shauna who's quite well known now because she's done Mm. the Olympics and stuff. And two of us were traveling together going from one to the next and you know it all sounds very exciting but you see a lot of like the inside of hotel rooms mm. and airport lounges mm. and then when you're not performing very well as well you can sometimes you know there's qualify around semi-finals and then finals you know if you say don't make make it through the qualify round, you've like flown all the way to China for example yeah. but you know done a massive long haul flight in the inside of a hotel room and and then compete, don't do very well. And you've only got a day before you're then flying to the next place. So you you yeah. don't really get to explore the places as much as you might like. Um, and so if, if your performance isn't going well, it, it can kind of not actually be that much fun.
0: And then I think um, the other thing about, you know, being an athlete and my only experiences from doing it as a junior is there's that thing of, of being abroad and Going to a competition somewhere and thinking, oh, how exciting we're going to such and such. But because you're an athlete, it's like zero fun because you have to be in bed early. You have to do your training. You have to rest in between your sessions. You have to eat. You have to do all of that stuff. You can't go sightseeing and be outside in the sun for ages, and you can't.
1: (laughs) And you don't want to eat anything too exciting in case you get sick. Just in case. Yeah. Yeah, So you're like eating all the bluntest things you can find or bringing your own food in some cases. Right. Um, I did do a World Cup in Barcelona where we went to the beach the day before the event and all the Brits, we just got totally burnt. (laughs) And it was really embarrassing because then the next day we were competing and it was really hot in the competition arena. And when you're burnt already and then you're really hot, honestly, people like what's wrong with the British team? They're all bright red and really struggling. <laughs> I honestly think we all got like borderline heat stroke
0: Oh no it was very unprofessional. Very unprofessional, mm-hmm. yes. Exactly. Yeah. And so there's so it, it's it's not as exciting as it sounds basically. No. So, and then you were at the time you were also climbing outdoors, like you said. And so were you increasing the sort of the challenge that you were putting on yourself for the for the outdoor climbing like trying to really push your grade <laughs> and things.
1: Yeah, I was um, kind of doing both. And as with a lot of sports, there's kind of seasons for things. So yeah. with competitions, bouldering, for example, has a certain season, you know, from I don't know if it's the same now, but it was kind of always like April through till, you know, July or or end June, July would be the bulk of the competitions would fall in that time period of the year. So that would be like when you, I would do the competitions and then over the summer I would climb outside more and into the autumn, and then maybe in the winter, I would train for the competition season again. Okay. So my year was kind of split between focusing on outdoors and focusing on indoors. And at the time I was bouldering a lot outdoors, but I was getting back into sport climbing a lot. And I was starting to feel like I was trying to juggle three things, like competitions, bouldering outside and sport climbing. And I I felt like I wasn't doing them as well as I could because I was um, spreading myself a bit thin.
0: Yeah, Um, because they all demand very different types of training very different sort of mental focus as well
1: yeah definitely and and also the competition scene was really changing and the setting was changing so i think when i first started competing you could be a strong outdoor climber and you could turn up and do well in the competitions yeah but they really started to change the style
0: yeah so it was that really jumpy
1: a yeah. bit more kind of parkoury almost mm. and you actually just had to train that stuff so it then just took up more time right so you couldn't just train train for climbing and go and do all the things that you wanted to do you had to like put special time into learning to like jump and stuff which I am really yeah. bad at anyway <laughs> even well, when I trained upside it down
0: you know I look at the look at Shauna's uh Instagram and stuff like that and she's sort of like swinging across here turning upside down you know being, yeah like, there's lots of, of that like, stuff and I'm like wow I like I've never seen anyone do that else I mean i I, I i've i've seen a quite a lot of climbing but i've never seen anybody do that outside maybe it is a thing maybe maybe yeah they're doing nowadays i don't know but
1: (laughs) but yeah there's definitely like a diversion in style yes and i started to feel you know i remember being away at some of the comps the year that i decided to stop and just wishing i like i think the weather was good in sheffield in the peak and i people everyone my friends were out on the grit and i was just like ah what am i doing i'm in a hotel room in god knows where yeah and i just started to get a bit of uh, yeah missing out feelings yes. and not wanting to be where I was so I just decided to stop and mm. to be honest it was the, it was such a good decision I think sometimes when you finally get to that decision it can feel like such a big decision like um and um, do not, um do not. and then as soon as I made the decision I just felt a huge amount of relief yeah and I honestly I haven't done a competition since not a local one no. like nothing I haven't mm-hmm. done any competing since um,
0: and you were sponsored at the time so how did that reflect for your sponsors did it make any difference to them that you were no
1: it didn't so my main two sponsors for most of my kind of um, career if you like have been 510 which is a shoe company and they they're very kind of split between they have competition climbers and they have outdoor climbers so they were kind of psyched for either I think they have had a bit more of a focus on competition climbers at times but they weren't kind of They were just like, okay, you want to do this other thing, that's fine. And I guess they sponsored me for both, really, because I always did both. And the other main sponsor that I've had is Arcteryx, and they're actually much more bothered about outdoor climbing anyway. So in a way, the competitions were something I was doing for me, they weren't at the time that bothered about that. So it was quite an easy decision in in terms
0: of sponsorship yeah okay because sometimes I know that at least athletes can get you know a little bit stuck into the decisions Mm -hmm. that they're able to make or having to constantly make choices that mean they're they're pushing much harder or really having to challenge themselves or find some sort of new and exciting thing to keep the sponsors happy to Mm. keep their social media followers happy to keep their kind of brand up but you you didn't feel that pressure
1: not from a competition standpoint no not not to keep competing I didn't think I need to do this for for the for companies that I work for no no and I I felt quite lucky to be in that position because I definitely know some athletes that on the competition circuit that not necessarily had to stay there and didn't want to but some sponsorship um, contracts are built around kind of yes. performance outcomes like that. Like, I know that there are some contracts where they'll say match your prize money or something. So, actually, right. how much money you it's earn is very, so very incentive based. And mm. you're, not only do, is that extra pressure to perform, but you know, should you decide you don't want to compete at all, I, something would have to shift quite dramatically in the way you work.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. And when you started fully committing to climbing Mm. outdoors and things like that, was that the point at which you started really pushing your grade? Or had you already been, you know, climbing the highest level? Like the Um, because you've climbed some of the highest grades in the country for a woman, haven't you? Or for anyone actually.
1: Yeah, for a woman. For a woman, yeah. The the men, the kind of men's top level in the UK is is just a little bit higher. Although actually no, because Emma Twyford has climbed nine A now. Right. So yeah. actually, so that so I'm not at the top any uh, anymore. But also that's oh no, Steve McClos, can't harder. Anyway, I digress. But sorry, now I've forgotten the question.
0: Were you already pushing your grade, like challenging the highest yeah. at that point?
1: I um, was, but more focused on bouldering.
0: Yeah. Oh right, okay. And then and and with your bouldering, did you ever start doing sort of the the big what they call high ball problems mm. and things like that? Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so, with the high ball problems, they're just ones that are much more exposed. They're ones that you know you really could put a rope on, or they've got quite a fall that's nasty or dramatic, needs quite a lot of protection. That's right, yeah.
1: Yeah, so a high ball doesn't need to have like a bad landing in terms of like a rocky landing or anything, it just literally means that it's high. So, it could be a completely flat landing and you can pad it out, but it, okay. it you're just you if you fall off from high up on the boulder at the top of the boulder, for example, you're just, you're gonna fall a long way before you hit the ground. But we have crash pads nowadays that are pretty good. Yeah. We have spotting techniques. Spotting is when you're kind of helping protect a climber. So making sure they don't hit their head, helping them yeah. to hit the pads when they land. And also you just get better at landing. Right. Um, the more you do this kind of stuff, you may you wouldn't go straight in at high balling. Um, no. But you you know, as you boulder, you learn to kind of fall well. Um, and also sometimes, you know it's this kind of slightly different mental challenge and and you do get into a kind of mindset of a bit of a no fall zone and no fall zone is often used as like a term for you know don't fall because you'll die kind of thing mm. and i highballs aren't aren't like that necessarily i certainly haven't done anything where i'd think oh i'm actually gonna die if i fall here i guess that would be more the realm of soloing like a complete yeah. no fall zone right but you i still found that high up on some stuff there would be points where I would be like right I don't fall up here (laughs) so you know you you just kind of get into a mindset of executing it well and depending on the boulder problem, sometimes I would have tried it on a rope first so I maybe know what the climbing is like at the top and so after a certain point I'm pretty committed to not falling off.
0: And so how do you approach uh, something like that psychologically? There's the physical confidence so that's part of helping you to be able to feel when you're standing at the bottom of the climb, you're like, I know that I can do it, but Mm. there's also a lot of that ability to know that you can do it mentally because there's, there's so much of climbing in itself is about the mental aspects. I remember talking to Charlie Woodburn about his famous route and him saying, you know, I had, I I didn't know that I could do it Mm. because nobody had done it before. And then once he did it, Loads of a few people did it after him. One person did it after, him, like immediately the mm. following week or something, because you have that confidence that an actual human being can actually do this actual climb. But if you're doing something that is really pushing your limits, the limits of other women who are around you, and especially because there's a a lot fewer women at the top of that mm. climbing pyramid. There's you, and Emma Twyford, Shaun, and Hazel at the top. But there's very few of you. So what suits you and your body and your climbing style might not suit them. So you don't know for 100 percent sure. So how do you set yourself up so that you're standing there able to approach that in a way like you, yeah. you're not going to have that 100 percent surety? So how, how, it's a really different type of mindset.
1: Yeah, and it's different depending on what we're talking about. You know, if we're talking about high balls or whether we're talking about roots and and boulders and stuff. So if it's just purely the physical side, say on a hard sport route or a boulder that isn't necessarily that high, to start with, it's just a case of going and trying. You know, like if something looks cool, you think, oh, that looks amazing. I'll go and try it. And I've walked away from plenty of things being like, all right, I don't think I'll ever do that because maybe there's a reach that's too big or I'm just not quite strong enough for it or it doesn't suit me or for whatever reason. But, you know, that's part of the joy of climbing is going and kind of exploring and adventuring and and trying stuff out when there's stuff that's maybe so like if, for example, there was a high ball that fell into that category of like, oh, I don't know whether this will be a good thing for me. I would probably potentially try it on a rope or or when you try something ground up, you kind of go a little bit higher each time. Yeah. And so, you know, if you get to a sticking point, you probably, you just won't get any higher, right? Or if you go and try it on a rope, you get, you can have a really thorough look at it and be like, okay, would I commit to this at this height? You know, we, we talk about kind of lower or higher percentage moves, you know, can you, can I do this move every time I try it on the rope? Or, you know, will I sometimes drop this move? And You don't need to be able to do it every time you do it on the rope in order to go from the ground. But you you start to get a sense, I guess, with the experience of where it sits within your ability and and how comfortable you feel having a go without that rope. Yeah. So it kind of, yeah, it kind of varies. And also, unless you're doing a first ascent, then someone has done this boulder or this route Mm. or whatever it is before you and often multiple people. And you can kind of get a sense from seeing people on the boulder or the route as to what the needs, the physical needs of it are, yeah. and you know, there's in terms of reach and height and things like that, there's plenty of small men out there who climb very strong. Yeah. So I often think, well, you know, for example, Steve McClure and I tech- are with the same height and have the same yes. spam
0: Oh, do you exactly? Wow. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So
1: I always, I always think, well, in theory, you know, on paper, right.
0: <laughs> um except he's you know much stronger and much climber than me I just love the fact that you're like well if Steve can do it then I can yeah well no technically
1: (laughs) if he can reach it I can reach it fine okay Okay. sometimes sometimes I think I've certainly had experiences where I feel like I can't reach but I'm actually just not strong enough
0: fine yes and I come
1: back to something and think I've been back to like roots or boulders and been like oh I don't think I can reach that move because I've tried it you know two years ago or something and then I'm stronger and suddenly I can reach because your body tension is better you know you can pull higher or closer into the move and you think ah okay um I'm not actually position
0: your body exactly yeah 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 okay and then you so so uh, you, you were obviously you know pushing your grade now I know that you tried and and this is quite a well-known story of yours so you don't you can go into it as in as much detail as you want to but I know you attempted a route that was definitely on your sort of top edge of what you can do and it was quite a um, quite a journey for you do you want to do you want to talk about that a little bit because I think maybe one of the things that is interesting is interesting for for people to understand just from a sort of why well, I had no idea that climbers did This sort of thing, or or how Mm. dangerous things were, or how, or or I thought it was really, I thought it was all really dangerous that your story about it is actually just a, a strange accident. But also, I think what I find so interesting about your approach to the route that you tried was your way of going about it over such a long period of time and coming back, and the way you sort of built your mindset around being able to do it and then slowly working it out. It's just such an interesting puzzle. We can talk about it. Yeah, yeah. With uh, Rain Shadow, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, Rain Shadow. So that's actually a uh, Steve McClure route. (laughs) So technically I can reach. But no, I I, I was trying another harder, sorry, harder, not hard for me, not harder than Rain Shadow, easier than Rain Shadow route at Malham, which is the crag where it is in North Yorkshire. And Ben Moon at the time was trying Rain Shadow, which he later did. But the first season he was trying it, you yeah, we, I belayed him sometimes, but also just watched him on it. The roots went right next to each other. I was trying a root, an 8C root called Bat Route. And so I watched him on it quite a bit. And, you know, we all chat about beta and moves and stuff. And I think I did Bat Route and he was like, oh, you should just have a little play on the crux because Rain Shadow really centers around this really hard boulder in them. Anyway, so I ended up going up and have a little, having a little play and then, you know, just planted the seed. And I think that year I didn't really try it much more, but the next year I I did a bunch of training in the winter and I was like, huh, okay, maybe I'm gonna try it. And it was a real step up for me in terms of difficulty. I think most of the routes that I've tried up until that point, I kind of knew I could do them. You know, I had that kind of subtle confidence that they were gonna be hard for me. It was gonna take a lot of work. I was maybe gonna have to go away and get better. But I could probably, I, I kind of felt like they were within the scope of what I knew I was capable of. Whereas with Rain Shadow, I didn't really. I was a bit like, oh, I have no idea if I'll ever be able to be able to do this or then do it. Because there's being able to do it and then there's actually doing it as well. Right. And it was interesting because, I mean, to cut a long story short, I tried it on and off for, for quite a few years. And, and I'm not exclusively, you know, I'd go on other trips and focus on other things for different parts of the year. But often in the spring, that was kind of when Malum Malum is like in in really good nick or the best nick that it gets into and so I would often focus on rain shadow in the springtime and I can't remember where I was going with that I've learned loads from trying it and it was a really really great experience I didn't end up doing it but I definitely got to the point where I knew I could do it which was really cool because I didn't know that at the beginning and even though I didn't actually do it I definitely got to a level and it, And it made me up my game
0: And was that right? Okay, so that's, so that's really interesting. So it made it so previously, you'd always approach something that you thought, if I train hard, I'll be able to do this, you had that kind of innate confidence in there somewhere that even though you weren't utterly convinced with all of the other ones you were like I reckon if I just you know I need to get the fingers strong and I need to get this particular move stronger Mm. or you know really need to work that particular type of move or sequence or something like that, but you had some confidence somewhere that you could do those things
1: yeah or even just spending more time on those routes yeah right
0: okay and then it kind of pieced itself together but with rain shadow you didn't at all and you didn't think it was ever going to come together but it was so that was a massive it was a big extra challenge it really made you do a lot more work on lots of things a lot more did you did you try lots of other types of honing your ability Was was there other things that you brought in as well
1: yeah I mean I guess the whole I guess what was really different about it at the start was that it was it felt quite like a vulnerable space to step into to say I'm going to try this route and for people that don't know Malam as a crag like it's quite it's it's quite you are almost up on this kind of exposed platform like it's you can't really go to the crag and just like sneak off and try rain shadow and no one will know you're trying (laughs) it. it's like (laughs) right up the middle of this crag and all the routes kind of around in this almost like semicircle off a kind of raised catwalk so we could all see what everyone else is doing mm. and people know the roots there you know I couldn't kind of go and kind of privately have a little go and over over a few seasons and, and then kind of skulk away if I couldn't do it it felt yeah. quite it felt like um, a bit of a statement to say that I I mm. thought it, I almost felt arrogant trying yes. it. Because I Did felt you like, have... you know, who am I right, to go yeah. and try this really, yeah. really hard route? Yeah. I'm probably not good enough. People must think that I think that I'm way better than I am. <laughs> yes, <laughs> That's a little nasty voice in my head. Right, anyway.
0: exactly. It's, it's a chatter, isn't it? And I think, you know, if and I'm sure a lot of uh, other sports are the same sort of thing. There's a lot of chatter around the ends of the days with climbing mm. and particularly on sort of climbing forums or something like that so you know perfectly well where people are going to be going oh, did you see me Mina was trying you know, oh,
1: interesting.
0: Well, you know and there's the uh, but but maybe I don't know maybe, but I know people are would not be thinking anything horrible but you just know that there's that chatter there now
1: yeah or that there might be I mean probably people don't care right because <laughs> yeah. most people are pretty bothered about what their own they're doing yeah. and they probably you know like if there was someone else trying hard I'd just be like oh great like right. move good on. luck yeah, yeah. <laughs> move on what am I yeah. doing or what am I having for lunch or do you know <laughs> right. what I mean like I think you know it's easy to you know blow things out of proportion in terms of what you think um, might be going on and yeah for sure and I and to be honest I only really got positivity um, from, from majority of the time anyway, in terms of support from people trying that route. And I felt especially like the kind of local climbing community and the people that I climbed with a lot really kind of had my back on it, which was really nice. Like that was, it was one of the really nice things about the climbing community.
0: Okay, so then you had a, a rather a dramatic fall.
1: <laughs> yes, the first one, <laughs> had yes. two. Oh
0: yes, the first one, right, yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah yeah so I fell off the route cut long story another long story short I fell off the route and there was a few different things at play but I flipped upside down which is very unusual in climbing especially in sport climbing and I hit my head so I was kind of stretched mountain rescue helicopter all the shebang taken to hospital I was actually totally fine in the end. I mean, I was concussed and I felt really rough for like a month, but in yeah, terms of done. any long-term, you yes. know, like it could have been really bad. Mm. I was totally fine. But obviously it was a real shock to the system and I was a bit like, huh, I don't even know if I'm going to be confident enough to climb again, let alone try this route. And I gradually got myself back to it is is what happened. And I I kind of did like a gradual re-exposure but to climbing, but also to that route. I kind of did the whole get back on the horse mentality and wanted to... I without boring you with the details like I want to try and understand what had gone wrong in terms of the kind of mechanics of the fall and I was able to look into that and basically work out what I think had happened and therefore prevent it from happening again and get to a point where in my mind I felt it was safe for me to try again because I didn't want to go and put myself in a position where the same thing was going to happen mm. and no one you know plenty of people have tried this route It's it's had it's had quite a few more now I don't know how many ascents it's had I think at the time it had, had like eight or nine ascents and no one else had fallen off it in that way and it's had ascents since and no one else has fallen off it in that way so I was it's like just huh, special okay just for you yeah special just for me
0: um, um, and, and, and it's worth pointing out at the moment that you know this is a sport climb where the bolts are already in the rock you're well mm. the, the quick draw already placed when I'm red pointing yeah 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 so, so I go up and put them in yeah. right so then so the the drawers that attach into the bolts that the rope then clips into were already there so you're clipping a rope into a quick draw that then protects you as you go up so in comparison to trad climbing or something where you're placing your own protection this is relatively safe I mean people it should have be dramatic yeah. falls sometimes in sport climbing but often that's uh because they've gone past the clip or there's been an exposed you know overhang or something like that but it should be pretty a, safe a very strange accident to have so this but especially with the flipping over
1: yeah I mean there were certain things that didn't play in its favor and it wasn't the nicest fall anyway because it is an overhang and the bolt where the bolt is is slightly too close in under the overhang and then there's a vertical wall so it's, it's a bit slammy if you want a better phrase or can be a bit slammy so you need a really dynamic catch um so that's a belay. So yeah. whoever's holding the rope needs to be quite skilled in order to make the fall comfortable. Yeah. So there were, there were a few different things playing into what went wrong that day. I learned a lot from it. And I also had this really interesting process of trying to overcome the fear of, of getting back on the route and deciding, okay, I'm going to keep trying it because I was doing really well on it at the time. Like I felt really strong and I was like, right, okay, I'm not going to let this completely knock me down. And so I did, I kind of tried it more, but then was it a year later, just 18 months later, I had another fall, different, annoyingly. I mean, same place. I literally fell off the same move. And because it's the end, it's like one of the last moves in the crux sequence. Okay. So if you're going to try the route, you have to be prepared to fall there. Yes. On red point. I mean, I think I was even just doing a link. I wasn't red pointing at that point, but you know, you're going to fall off there because it's the hardest section. So it, you can't just think, oh, I'll try not to fall there next time because it will just inevitably happen a few mm. times. So it was the same move. The fall was <laughs> slightly different, but this time I broke my wrist quite badly as well. I say broken when shattered is probably a better description. Oh, I kind of shattered my head. Because you went of,
0: into the wall?
1: Yeah, actually with my arm the other way. So I oh. I put it out this way. Uh, I didn't get to, I didn't have time to put my hand out that way, so I probably would have just broken it differently. But so it impacted there. So my palm came towards my forearm, it was horrible. And then I instinctively like straightened it and was like, Ugh. and it went, and I was like, oh God. So I, yeah, anyway, I ended up back at the same hospital being like, oh, sorry, rock climber again. Hi, me again. Broken hand. Yeah. Um, luckily it was different people working. <laughs> and then um, they had to like, what do they call it when they have to like reset it, you know, give you a like, lot strong painkillers and sedatives oh, and geez. then wiggle around the bones because it would all kind of fractured and also displaced itself.
0: Oh, God, um,
1: yes. So after that, I drew a line under it I just said no I'm not okay you know I'm the only person to ever had an accident on it I've had two (laughs) but also I was just I was just like this is ridiculous something in the universe is telling me to like move
0: on yeah and how do you deal with that sort of uh decision because presumably previously you have come across climbs maybe bold problems as well that you've gone I just I'm just gonna leave it i'm just this isn't hmm. gonna happen and it has has that been easier or was actually rain shadow a lot easier to just go do you know what no it's a no now
1: in some ways it was easier and in some ways it was harder because it was harder because i'd put so much time and energy into it and i mm. love the route i love trying it i'd invested a lot both time wise emotionally physically into it and i really wanted to see it through and i was at the point where i knew i could do it as well like okay. i was pretty sure I didn't know when I'd do it, but I was pretty sure that I that I could physically okay. do it. Yeah. And I'd already overcome the head injury thing and that fall. And I really thought I'd sorted it out. And then this happened. But in other ways it was easy because I think when that happens twice, like I just would have felt silly carrying on. Even though yeah. you know people have done the route since and taken that fall and not hurt themselves, mm. I just feel like if I hurt myself on it a third time, it would just be like ridiculous. Mm. And also, I broke my wrist so badly that I don't think I could do the climb anymore from a physical point of view.
0: Right. So um, then there's, you know, the resetting of a, a lot of fractured bones that does require, yeah. lo- loses a lot of strength. There's a lot of scars. loses a lot of strength. as anything else.
1: And my wrist's just like a different shape. It's, right. it's a bit, you know, um, I can show you things we're doing video you oh, can yeah. see that one. is like, it's just a bit funny now. And it, it's pretty functional, but it's, you know, you can see it's a bit yep. strange compared to yep. a normal wrist. Yep. And and a lot of the the rain shadow crux revolves around a left-hand undercut. So it's a very okay. strengthy move on a left-hand okay. undercut. And I think yep. undercuts are one of the hardest things for me to do yep. with my wrist because it overextends. So I mean, maybe physically. At the time, I knew it would be a long road to getting back to that point physically. Now, a few years down the line with the wrist, it's still weaker. My left hand's still weaker than my right hand, especially with like pinch grips um, and undercuts. Right, okay. I you know, if you, brought, if you brought the hardest moves of Rain Shadow down to the ground and said, Mina, will you ever be able to do this? I wouldn't draw, I wouldn't completely say no. I'd be like, oh maybe Yeah. if I, I mean, yeah. I'm not in the shape for it now at all because there's a lot of baby, yeah. but I don't think the wrist was a complete, you know, but it would have been a lot harder and it was already really hard for me.
0: And, and, did, and... You, did you manage to find another climb that helped you to get some sense of that you could still get that massive challenge? Did you manage to find something else that sort of not quite replaced it, but gave you that confidence that you hadn't lost that ability to fully and utterly challenge yourself? No, not really. Not since then.
1: Because, well, for a start, I had a broken wrist for ages. And then I rehabbed that and I, I mean, I still really enjoyed climbing. I rehabbed that. I went to Spain for a trip and like I I did some climbs that felt challenging, but they were, you know, in terms of number difficulty, easier than things that I've done before for sure. But but it was almost like my level dropped. So what felt challenging just had a different number attached to it. But the experience is very much the same.
0: Yeah. yeah, Um,
1: Yeah. So I still had a great time and still really enjoyed climbing, but I haven't really tried any, I haven't tried anything as hard as Rain Shadow or even as hard as the other hardest things that i've done okay. since because the wrist took a while to recover and then as i'm sure we'll discuss yeah. i had a red s diagnosis yeah pretty soon after the wrist
0: okay um, so you've had and then i had a baby baby and then <laughs> there's even a lot to go so i haven't climbed lot.
1: hard into yeah. where i used to be with my root climbing especially um since i broke my wrist
0: okay So we just mentioned you then had a diagnosis of something called Red S, which Mm. um, is used to be called the female athlete triad. You know, if we think about you as a youth climber and growing up in an elite sport where you're competing and things like that, and then being in the squad as an adult in the World Cup, did you feel under pressure whilst you were in those competition states to, to be thinner or to maintain thinness or to stay small or to be light or to sort of watch you what you were eating?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, So climbing is a weight sensitive, I like to say, sport. I don't think it's weight dependent. I think it's weight sensitive. So, you know, there's this whole strength to weight ratio. We have to lift our bodies and carry them up the wall. So it would be naive of me to say even now out the other side of Red S that weight isn't relevant in climbing. Having said that, it's one metric and it's one part of a huge picture of a sport that is particularly, I think, multifaceted. There's so much that goes into being a good climber. There's being strong and powerful, but there's that in your fingers, there's that in your legs, there's that in your core and your arms, you know, there's so, we use a whole body when we're climbing and there's the mental side of it, there's flexibility. There's, there's so much that goes into being a good climber. So yes, being light on a very in a very kind of technical way, yes, you have to carry less. But also being light usually means less muscle mass. So you have less strength to carry what okay. you have and um, maybe find it harder to be powerful. So that it, it's a complex thing. It's not as black and white as perhaps as uh, we might think. And I might have thought in the past as well. And I think there okay. is a tendency in these weight sensitive sports to err on the side of caution when it comes to food, eating, any gaining of weight, whether that's muscle or fat tissue. So yes, is the short answer, yeah. but I think it's quite a complex issue, isn't it?
0: And I think as a younger athlete, at, at any point, even through your 20s, you're still influenced in quite a sort of basic way by she's smaller and did better than me. Therefore, I need to be smaller. Or you see branding, advertising with the big sponsored climbers and, you know, the girl climber is, super thin wearing tiny hot pants and you know wh- whatever it might be there's that kind of like beauty thinness extremely well well muscly very lean type of mm. body that you see much more obviously being successful than mm. anybody that seems to have any level of diversity with their, mm. their sort of body shape or things like that and I I, I always find that you know I think, I think as, a, as an adult person, you know, going through to middle age, it's much, much easier to look at that and go, yes, but is she functional? What's she eating? What's going on in her mental state? Do we know anything else about her mm. as we're looking at these pictures of, of girls advertising something? You know, they're OK, they're professional climbers, but there's they're still a certain look. And this happens across all, all sports. So, you mm. know, I've spoken to surfers, who have and they have the same issue in surfing where the branding from the big um, name brands for many of them the ones the pictures that get out there are the girls in a surfing in a bikini and and you know they've got Long hair and they're very lean and things mm. like that, and and yet there is a diversity of body shapes doing those sports, all of these sports. As youth, I think, or, or younger people, I think it might be, it, it might feel like it's quite a sort of, she's doing better, she's smaller. I need to be small. Mm. Whereas as an adult, maybe we can see a little bit more depth into it. And and mm. so is that like have you had a kind of, in hindsight, look back? Now that because basically what happened is you had a diagnosis at some point because you were having um, issues with uh, your menstrual cycle. Is that correct? Or
1: yeah, I, I basically I came off my pill not actually to get pregnant. Kind of partly because I was interested in training and uh, menstrual cycle and kind of okay, training yeah. alongside your cycle a bit more. And um, and I hadn't had a menstrual cycle for years and years and years because I'd been on the mini pill and it's very normal not to have a cycle on the progesterone only pill. That's like yeah. a standard side effect they always tell you it's totally fine so i didn't think that there was anything wrong and as a teenager i had had a cycle so i was like okay fine but then i just thought oh, i wonder what's going on with it and maybe subconsciously i was like in my early 30s and i was like maybe i would want to have a kid at some point yeah. so you know let's just check in and then nothing happened i came off the pill and like nada and after a few months i went to the doctor and had bloods done and they were like hmm this isn't right and then I basically did a load of research and was like, huh, I think I know what this might be. And then um, I went to see a sports doctor in um, London called Dr. Nicola Key and a, a sports dietitian called Rini McGregor, who specialise in this kind of thing. Okay. And uh, they gave me the diagnosis of red S, which is relative energy deficiency in sport. And it's essentially when you don't have enough energy available to do some of the basics housekeeping that your body does okay and that includes producing enough hormones to have a menstrual cycle in the case of women okay. so um, losing your periods is can can be a sign it can be a sign of other things but it can be a sign of they're just not being enough fuel going in basically and your mm-hmm. body will always prioritize the exercise so you know i might have been eating what looked like a kind of Alright, amount of food but for the amount i was training and doing it just wasn't enough so my body started to down regulate some things that weren't seen as kind of necessary yeah. at that point yeah and um, but obviously it's I, that comes with a whole host of other health risks and things so it's obviously not a healthy space to be in
0: no and and so i guess just to go back to my question then do you think now when you look back that you can see a path where things might where you might be like oh I can see where I did some things maybe wrong or or I could have done things differently or I see where things could have influenced the decisions that I made
1: yeah definitely and to be honest for me it was less looking at other people and thinking that I should look or be that way it was more I had in fact, the year that I did well in competitions, that 2013 year, I also was climbing really well outside. And I think I just like happened. I think we did a trip somewhere and we did loads and loads of hiking at altitude. And Mm -hmm. I just naturally slimmed down and was suddenly quite light. And then had this run of amazing climbing. Basically, I climbed really well. And I associated that with a certain body weight. and once that association was made it was very hard to shift it you know that kind of thing happens naturally with sport especially outdoor sport where you're doing lots of hiking and climbing and all that kind of stuff but then you usually put the weight back on that would be like the normal thing put the weight Mm -hmm. back on and then you know maybe this is your kind of your standard but then you know at times you might drop a little bit naturally when you're doing more and or maybe in a performance zone or something but what I did was I made that drop I associated it with uh, performance and then I fought quite hard to stay there okay Um, so then yeah I guess I like picked up habits along the way that weren't that helpful just you know nothing super extreme like I've I was never like bulimic or you know I I would not have classed myself as having an eating disorder I would say I had some dysfunctional a few dysfunctional habits here and there just a little bit avoidant around food or small portions when actually maybe I was a bit hungrier but I'd stop sooner than maybe my instincts were saying because I would think that I maybe shouldn't eat too much more if I wanted to stay in the shape Mm. that I was in so it wasn't that I was skipping whole meals or doing anything really drastic I was it was just little things here and there because I had this perceived idea that my performance was so connected to being that light and unfortunately I did perform really well when I was light yeah yeah reinforced and reinforced and reinforced (sighs) It's so hard to know, you know. Like looking back at that point, I, who knows? Because I was on the pill, I have no idea when my period stopped. So maybe I was perfectly healthy then, and maybe it was a few years later, right. okay. you know, or maybe it was a few months later. Yeah. Maybe I wouldn't have had periods for years in there, or maybe it was more recent. I just don't yeah. know, and I never will know. And I don't know how well I would have performed had I, in those moments where I was already performing well, just fueled a little bit better. Yeah, I often yeah. think. When I think back to when I was trying rain shadow and I wasn't doing anything that dysfunctional, but I was watching what I ate a little bit Uh because it did help to be light on that route. Yeah. But I wonder if I'd just eaten a little bit more. Maybe I'd have done it. A
0: a few more beans in the in the fingers or something. Yeah. I suppose it's really interesting to hear there was nothing obvious. You weren't skipping whole meals. You weren't outwardly making major eating disorder type habits or, or, or you weren't doing anything that would make anyone go <clears throat> hang on a second Mina like take your side intervention you need to no. I, you know we really need to be careful here you were you were eating healthily and in an athlete world where a lot of people spend a lot of time going oh so what do you do to kind of fuel yourself for I think there is mm. a lot of talk about eating carefully and and watching what you do I remember, I remember going to Thailand and the climbers who were trying all the hard routes in Thailand you know just eating broccoli and rice and you know that was it i was like scoffing down the not that i was there we were just climbing because we happened to be there but you know the, in paradise with incredible food and they were just eating just a boiled rice with a bit of broccoli on the side yeah. and there's a huge culture of that in climbing yeah so it's difficult to pick up then, isn't it? So I'm kind of thinking of things like parents who might have kids who are athletes and they're thinking, what could I watch out for? Well, it. I'm not sure that there's anything that's particularly obvious. And maybe yeah. it's more of a, the way that your body responds because maybe for some people, the amount that you're fueling is okay or maybe it's not, you know, I don't know. What do you think about? Yeah, what would you be your I mean, I
1: think any kind of over. Fixation on food, how much you're eating, when you're eating, oh, I shouldn't eat this or I should eat that, or cutting out whole food groups, or you know, things. I went through a phase where I like didn't really eat carbs very much because for some reason I thought that was a good idea. It's an awful idea. It's It's an awful idea. It doesn't do you any favors. (laughs) Um, But you know, those kinds of things, or you know, suddenly signing up to you know thought processes like clean eating, or you know, some of these faddy things that are out there. so I guess looking out for things like that or, and and being overly kind of fixated on how much or when someone yeah. is eating. I used to track my food. That was something that I did. And so I used okay. to like track my calorie intake and stuff like that. Not all the time, but I had would go through phases of doing that. Okay. And now to me, that seems, or at least the way I was doing it, like I do think sometimes for some people, it can be interesting to track your intake for a short amount mm. of time mm. to get a snapshot of, oh, actually, you know, what is my average calorie intake? And for some people, it can be really useful to know that actually they need to be eating more.
0: You know, nice.
1: um yeah. when I've worked with people since, you know, you think yeah. actually, I get them to track to show show them what they're actually eating because they say, oh, I'm tired, but I eat loads. And then we look at it and we go, actually, you don't eat in terms of calories. So, you know, let's see if we can add some food in here. So I, I don't think, you know, tracking for for snapshots of data, if you like, is always a bad thing. But I was you know look I was tracking my intake just kind of indefinitely for periods of time which I don't think was necessary and it was in with a restrictive mindset it was a to stop me having too much based on what I thought was an appropriate amount for me to have and I was wrong and part of this part of the complication with me was that I was never I was never actually underweight so I was I was probably quite slim for my body type and my genetics okay. and where they want to be. But for example, I never fell under the kind of BMI scale for, yeah. for class, class yeah. as underweight. So it's very easy to categorize yourself as not having any kind of issue when, when that's, that's where you sit. And also I think the whole being an elite athlete thing, like I remember my aunt actually one year saying to me, oh, you know, you're looking very thin or very small. Is everything okay? And I just said, oh, yeah, yeah, it's fine. And, and I genuinely believed it at the time. I didn't, I wasn't thinking, yeah. oh, now I need to lie and tell her I'm yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, I genuinely, yeah. I was deluded at the time. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm totally fine. And this is just, you know, you can put the athlete something badge on athlete
0: it. Is, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: And when, you know, you don't have pudding <laughs> ever,
0: yes. you know, you just
1: go, oh, but, you know, I'm training or I'm, yes. I'm moving into it's a few an easy thing to, or something.
0: It's a thing to hide behind in yeah, order to... Totally. to- provide that excuse okay and so when you got a diagnosis then presumably you had to really come to terms with quite a lot of what what that meant for what you were doing and how you needed to eat and fuel differently and train differently and things so how was that process for you of finding all of that out
1: it was a real shock to be honest um yeah it was a real shock and and partly because of this you know not being underweight thing I was like mm. but I'm you know I have fat on my body not loads but I have some so like you know I'm I'm not kind of really really un- I don't look unhealthy you wouldn't have picked me out on the street and gone all you know this, she needs to or that there's something going on there so I, I think I found it quite hard to swallow I kept thinking that there was rot you know must be something else mm. and of course they do have to investigate other things as well before you get okay. a diagnosis so and also i I've had a head injury and obviously a lot of your hormonal regulation happens in the hypothalamus in the brain so I actually did end up having an MRI scan and that wasn't my suggestion you know that was like part of the medical checking out other things to see if there was something else going on in terms of my hormone production. But you know, I had a stern talking to from a sports (laughs) doctor who was like, no, this is what it is. And you don't have to be underweight to have red S. That's a really common misconception. And that, you know, actually over time, sometimes it can almost go the other way because, you know, you can start almost holding on to certain stores and we're kind of going into too much depth on that. But yeah. So I had a really stern talking to, and I went away with my then boyfriend now husband and we talked a lot. And I know I, they said it might take me 12 to 18 months to get my periods back, which was frightening. It didn't take that long, but you know, so it was. I had to really make some big changes, and I started by making the changes of eating more. But at the time, I was prepping to go on a trip where I wanted to try a hard route, and it was like the first time I was going to try a hard route since um, breaking my wrist. And I'd been kind of slightly trying to drop a little little bit of weight for it, and suddenly I was being told I had red S and I needed to like mm-hmm. eat loads of food and put on weight, and that probably my weight would go up before everything caught up. Okay. Um, so suddenly I had to start eating loads and, and yeah, it was difficult because I still went on the trip. That was weird. And I ended up not really trying the route because I wasn't in any fit state mentally or physically to try it. And I, it was almost like as soon as someone told me what was going on and I started eating more, I realized how hungry I was oh. and how tired I was. I felt yeah. so burnt out. And it was almost like as soon as, it's like I was up here and it, it was like adrenaline was holding me up. And yeah. then I just like, And I I kind of had a bit of a like burnout, to be honest, over the next few months. I ate loads and I just kind of responded to hunger and was like, well, if I'm going to do this, I need to do it properly. If I'm not going to do it, then I'll just ignore their advice and I'll diet for this trip (laughs) and this route. Or if I am going to follow their advice, I'm going to do it properly. So I started eating more, but I was still exercising. I was still climbing. I was still running because I got quite into running that couple, couple of years before and i was still kind of doing quite a lot. And it basically didn't make much difference. I put on a reasonable amount of weight quite quickly from eating more, but I didn't. And the hunger was insane. It was almost like once I started, I just got hungrier wow. and hungrier. And um, like I started waking up hungry, which <laughs> was ridiculous. I never wow. used to wake up hungry. Yeah. Um, but it was almost like my metabolism was like kicking back in or something or some kind of fire was being stoked <laughs> my yeah. appetite, but it didn't really make that much difference in terms of like hormones or, you know, I, I wasn't getting my cycle back and, and maybe it would have happened eventually with just eating more, but I really found that things started to shift when I took full rest. So yeah. I basically got to the end of this climbing trip and well, not quite the end. I met my boyfriend because um, I'd been on this separate climbing trip. I went somewhere else and then I met him and, I was like, do you know what? I'm not going to climb these last three weeks. I'm just going to go for walks. You go climbing Mm. and I'm just going to eat and go for walks. (laughs) And I I, I basically started to feel absolutely knackered. And I thought I need a proper, proper rest. And I'm going to indefinitely do nothing more than walking.
0: Wow, which is that a must huge So change. much to get your head around, and also some sort of, you know, a bit of grief of having to let go of of where you were thinking you were going to, of trying this climb, of getting back on, you know, the harder rock, and then having this diagnosis. That that's a lot that you have to be able to come to terms with. In in as if it's a grief, yeah. It felt like it, yeah,
1: Yeah. and I felt stupid as well, like I felt stupid for getting myself into that state and Mm. I felt naive and embarrassed, you know, there was a lot of shame as well Mm. of kind of this kind of self-inflicted mess up and and I also felt scared because...
0: Yeah.
1: We weren't planning on having a baby then, but we knew we wanted to have a baby at some point. And I, they basically told me I was infertile unless I fixed it, because, you know, you're not having periods. I wasn't ovulating. And I was in my early 30s. And, you know, that that's not really what you want to be told if that's something that you want. No. And they told me it might take quite a while. So I was kind of scared as well. And that was a big kind of catalyst in in me kind of going all in, if you like, with okay. the recovery. That was... really made you
0: take it seriously, having that. Yeah. Yes. Which maybe it wouldn't have done had you been... 21 or something.
1: Exactly. Well, that and the bone health actually, because everything to do with reds is pretty reversible in terms of menstrual cycle, hormones, all that kind of stuff. If you sort it out, it'll come back. But one thing, so mm-hmm. if you're kind of chronically low on female hormones, especially estrogen, it can affect your bone health. So it's effectively early onset osteoporosis or osteopenia. So that's why a lot of women get osteoporosis when they're kind of older is because post-menopausally we have much lower circulating hormone levels unless you're on HRT and you're, you, we, you know, we reach peak bone health, I think around 21 or something like that, you know, it's early 20s. Yeah. And then, so from that point on, you're kind of maintaining your kind of bone density Um,
0: which is why sort of impact and strength work and things like that is so important because we need to get that tension on our bones exactly to get that maintenance
1: exactly but being in a state of red s is almost hormonally quite similar to being postmenopausal. right so you're essentially putting yourself in that state a lot earlier and i had no idea how long i'd been in that state yeah and so i i got sent for a bone scan and actually my bones were fine i was within normal range in terms of bone density but i think i think i was quite lucky to be honest yeah sports doctor was like you should thank your parents for some good bone genes because you know this could have been a lot worse but essentially, I was like, right, well, I need to get myself out of this. I've already been lucky here. I need to get yes. myself out of this state. Right. That's the one thing that you kind of can't come back from as easily.
0: And happily, you did manage to get pregnant. And now you have uh, yes. your little baby boy um,
1: yeah.
0: who is now eight months.
1: Yeah, at- just approaching eight months. Yeah, like seven and a half, eight months. Yeah,
0: Such a joyous age. And so how has because that those that's kind of run into each other you know I talk quite a lot with women where we're talking about your sort of change in your perspective of your own body that pre-pregnancy you know before you you know when you kind of like is a little inkling about whether or not you might want to have kids especially mm. if you're an athlete or you're somebody who who really enjoys exercise does a lot of it and you have kind of you know your own self view of your body both functionally as well as as well as appearance wise and Mm -hmm. then you get pregnant and then you have a baby and it's that 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 kind of like trying to work out you know where am I now what's going on Mm -hmm. but for you it was also complicated with having had this diagnosis really coming to terms with a lot of stuff about what you what you had always really thought about your body mm. maybe not being actually the way that it was so so how was that for you the the sort of getting and being pregnant and now postnatally with following on from that major sort of life event of a red S?
1: yeah so it was really interesting actually because I kind of I only had a couple of periods before I got pregnant and, but then we miscarried the first pregnancy. So I I had this kind of, you know, really weird hormonal ride of like Mm. not having any hormones to suddenly having all my hormones come back. I put on quite a lot of weight in that time as well. So in terms of identity and how I felt in my body, both like as a, you know, elite athlete and, you know, I I put on about over 10 kilograms. So like a serious amount of weight. And, And then it slowly started to kind of, um, Kind of settle and re-regulate, yeah. but it took quite a few months after my periods have restored for that to start to re-regulate and and settle a bit. And and but in that time, I then got pregnant, and I was pregnant for like three months before I had a miscarriage. So I was oh. I was like then had that like hormonal barrage. Mm. I was like oh, I feel like my body's just been through like a washing machine. But then I actually got pregnant again quite quickly. So for the second time. So then I was suddenly you know in pregnancy again. Mm. I actually really enjoyed being pregnant. I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was fascinating. And I was lucky that I felt, you know, reasonably well through all of it. I mean, I felt knackered in the first bit, obviously, but but not kind of too sick or anything. But yeah, so I had, a, and I climbed through my pregnancy as well, um, right up until kind of eight months-ish, just like top roping and stuff. And it felt really positive and good. And okay. I did a bunch of strength training as well, because by before I got pregnant, I had started to bring in exercise again, just like gradually and just making sure I ate plenty. And yeah, so that was really positive and I felt really well. And in a way, the pregnancy gave me like another focus and it stopped me trying to dive back into high performance or anything like that, which was probably a really good thing. It just slowed me down. Mm. And I think my mind my whole mindset has changed since the Red S thing anyway. Like I'm just I'm not as performance focused as I used to be. I don't think. There's still a bit of a natural type A personality thing going on in there somewhere for sure. I don't think that'll ever go. And I still love climbing. But there was definitely a shift. And maybe that would have happened anyway with age. I don't know.
0: But maybe and maybe also there's that period once you're kids get to a certain point where they're not babies any longer and then and then all of that resets and your body is still strong Mm. very functional very useful you can still make really good gains so what you've got to come is still really exciting and for you it would be super interesting to to sort of be at that point maybe in five years time or something and and finding out what happens now that you've gone through so much mm. to then rebuild again this kind of very new version of Mina without being in that high performance state but still being able to highly perform but just with a completely different sort of mindset or approach or an understanding for, of what your body's capable of
1: Yeah, absolutely. And even, you know, even already, obviously, the little one's still quite young, but I've been climbing again for a while now. And I feel like I can try hard. And I'm not climbing at the level that I used to climb at. But I mean, I'm still climbing at a level that's hard enough to be interesting for me and enjoyable and engaging. Yeah, And that's, you know, really just what I want from it. So... Yeah. And I'm amazed at because before you get pregnant or have a baby, you, know, you have no idea you know, how your body's going to feel afterwards. And no. it is yeah. a bit of a shocker in some ways, but it's, I've also been surprised at how positive my recovery has been. To be honest, it's been easy is the wrong word, but it's been more straightforward, should I say, than I thought it was going to be. Do
0: you think it's climbing that's helped out that your body is in a really con- good condition?
1: So i think there's also just more support out there so i was able to get more help you know i saw a physio and i got some help from a lady that does pregnancy pt stuff a lady called joy and and also from my my friend who does some training for lattice climbing as well and so i feel like there was loads of support out there and i also feel like my body just wasn't as weak as i expected it to be right there was this strength that i didn't expect to be there and obviously not straight away but gradually my body knew how to be pregnant it knew how to have a baby and it knew how to recover and I had to not get in the way for a lot of it and then do the right things at the right time and it's kind of and I know that doesn't that won't work that um, formula isn't kind of a fix-all you know everyone has different pregnancies and different birth experiences and we all have our different challenges and maybe I'm lucky that mine's been relatively straightforward and I did actually end up having an emergency c-section because I didn't have a, a hugely straightforward birth but Given that my recovery has also been uh, very positive, more positive than I expected it to be when I ended up having a a section.
0: And and maybe you know that expectation is because you felt like you you've been told quite a lot that some of the things that you were doing were not quite right pre just previously to, or you were worried about the you know having confidence in whether or not you were going to be able to get pregnant, and so. Maybe, I mean, were you kind of continuously kind of like, oh, wow, look, look at me. Yeah. And like, it's yeah. okay. I can yeah. do it. And so there was that constant kind of like, God, look, I have done it. It's all right. My body is okay. And yeah, you know, that's yeah. really reassuring that because the, the red S was caught at the right time, you were then able to go into your pregnancy with, you know, really good health basis foundation that maybe you yeah. wouldn't have had had it not, had you just happened to get pregnant.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And also just like a bit more trust in my body. And Mm. I think I expected to feel not like me after having a baby. I expected to feel almost like for my body to feel alien or like someone else's body or like this completely new thing. I expected there to be more of a divide between... um, pre-baby and post-baby yeah um like it was going to be completely different and I know for some women it is completely different but for me it hasn't been I still I mean I don't look and feel exactly the same as I did before having a baby but I I still feel like me and I don't feel that that different and growing a human and you know having a baby is like really empowering (laughs) it's really empowering it's amazing what our bodies do and yeah you know, it's just a different it's a different category you know sometimes you can look at climbers or climbing or any other sport for that matter and be like wow isn't it amazing what the body can do and right. pregnancy to me is just like that yeah, yeah, yeah it's it just is. you know it's a it's a different category but it's like wow I mean it's yeah. a whole nother level of category to be honest it is. Um, but
0: yeah and so in the last few years you have become a qualified sports nutritionist yes. and you help athletes to create training nutrition plans and things like that so has a lot of that been influenced by your experiences partly with Red s but obviously as an elite athlete as well
1: yeah sure so I actually started studying nutrition before I knew about my Red s okay uh, which is kind of interesting
0: yeah um,
1: and then we studied some red s stuff like we you know I, I learned about it from an academic perspective and I honestly just didn't realize it was happening to me at the time which sounds ridiculous but it's amazing how kind of cloak and dagger it can be Mm. and now I think obviously with more experience I perhaps could have known but I think the the pill played a huge part in your menstrual cycle is like a huge barometer for health in female athletes and if you don't have a natural one and and there's lots of reasons to be on the pill I totally get that but it just removes that barometer of health so yeah I was already really interested in nutrition and I work for a company called Lattice Training in the UK that do kind of training for climbers so it's, it's much more focused on the physical training but we wanted to build in a kind of nutrition arm to support the the training advice and plans okay. that we give out so I've been working for them since I first did my first level of qualification with the nutrition stuff okay. it's been really interesting it's been really good yeah
0: yeah yeah and I suppose a part of that for climbers is also making sure that they're well fueled for it and have a really good understanding of what is an appropriate level of nutrition and fueling for the energy output that they are you know requiring of themselves yeah. for these sort of exactly intense training programs
1: yeah absolutely and also you know elite athletes are are still humans and people as well and yeah. we still enjoy food and we you know food is a really cultural social thing mm. it's connection it's eating with your family it's taste and eating food that you enjoy and so it's, it's so much more than just you know ticking a box in terms of have I hit my protein targets you know we're not any of us athletes or non-athletes no when none of us are robots and so I think it's it, I also try and really bring that into the, the work that I do at Lattice and okay. I've, I've also um, done the intuitive eating qualification Oh, um, amazing! Yeah, and I found that really helpful in my recovery. I found that framework really, really positive yes. and it gave me something to kind of anchor myself to through that process. And it, I don't know if people know much, but it's based on kind of 10 principles and those 10 principles I found really helpful in terms of bringing myself back to something of, okay, What what am I trying to achieve here, and what am I trying to build in terms of a positive, long lasting relationship with food, and actually trusting that your body can self regulate? You know, I haven't known for years how much calorie intake I eat because I eat when I'm hungry, and I can. It's about being in tune, isn't it? In some ways, it's similar to you know when you have a newborn and you have to suddenly get in tune with their feeding cues and their tired cues, and it's almost like doing that with yourself. You know, tuning in a bit more and listening a bit more and realizing that you can self-regulate without all this external numbers and data and input to a certain extent it's it's good to have some knowledge especially yeah. if you're pushing your yeah. body um, but it's a balance so try and bring that kind of stuff in as well
0: with people yeah and, and it's so interesting and I think what what an amazing set of experiences that you must have to bring to all the athletes that you work with it's um, really invaluable to have that Wonderful. Mina, thank you so much. You've shared a lot about everything in your life which has been so interesting. And I really hope everybody's got an awful lot from this because it's been, you know, really super interesting for me. So thank you and um, for your generosity with sharing all of that today.
1: Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me on. It's lovely to see you again. Yeah,
0: and you.